Good morning, church. Excited to be back preaching with you this morning. Uh, we're looking and continuing through our study through the gospel according to Mark, trying to answer that question, who is Jesus? At the Mountain Church, we believe that Jesus is the most important person that you can know and experience. He's the greatest person that ever lived. The God-man, the, the Son of God, he's the most important person that you can know and experience. And we believe that all of the Bible, all scripture is about Jesus. The passage we just read is about Jesus. So my goal this morning is that we would see Jesus in this passage, that we would find him most beautiful, that we would be satisfied in him, that we would find him most delightful, and that somehow through this, God would use what I say to awaken our hearts, to grow our affections toward him, and to be better followers of him that love him more dearly and are more committed to, to be more like him, to be conformed like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're catching the last scene that Mark describes here in the temple. Jesus had gone into the temple and he had been kind of attacked, questioned on certain issues, certain controversies. We see here in Mark 12, 35 through 44, Jesus kind of throws a, a counterpunch. Like in, in, a, in, a, in a fight or in a boxing match, Jesus has kind of been sitting there taking it, answering the questions, defending himself. And in this moment here, Jesus comes himself and asks a question. He challenges the scribes. He comes back with the, the swinger, the left hook, the counterpunch. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 12, starting at verses 35. We're finishing up today Jesus' final account, final story of his public ministry from, from this point on, after starting in verse, excuse me, chapter 13. Jesus spends more of his time with his disciples. From this moment on, Jesus warns his disciples of the coming age, uh, the final days. Mark describes the plot to kill Jesus. Jesus has a final Passover meal with his disciples. He's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested, and finally he's tried and crucified. That's, that's where we're heading in the gospel according to Mark. This is the, the last scene in Jesus' public ministry. And Jesus asked a question of his own. In verse 35, he says, who is the Messiah? He comes to him and says, as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes, the scribes were the experts in the law, they were the official interpreters of the law, they were the, the Bible teachers, he said, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Verse 37 David himself calls him Lord, so how is he son? This passage is taken from Psalm 110, verse 1. It's a prophetic promise. It's David describing my Lord, which if you flip back to, to Psalm 110, you'll see that my Lord there, that's in all caps. It's a way of saying Yahweh. It's a way of describing the Father. The Lord says to my Lord, and it's not capitalized, which is Adonai, so Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my feet. And if this promise is about the Messiah, how can David call his descendants his Lord? That doesn't make sense. The Jews would not do that. The, the father figure would not call his son his Lord. And Jesus is asking that question, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David when the Christ will also be the Lord of David. 
Now, some have wrongly misunderstood this to mean that Jesus is saying, well, the Messiah isn't a descendant of David. But that's not his main point. He's saying the Messiah is not just a descendant of David. Since David spoke of a descendant as his Lord, it must have been more than a physical son. Jesus is trying to show his scribes, the scribes, that they didn't have a full view of who the Messiah was. Their view of the Messiah was inadequate, and Jesus challenges their view, their incomplete view they have of the Messiah. Because this Lord that David described is going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh, of the Lord, of the Father. He is more than any kind of political war hero expectation of who they thought the Messiah would be. This is going to be a divine ruler of David. He is greater than David. He is not just the son of David, but he is the Lord of David. What we've seen up to this point is the scribes not only have an a incomplete view of the Messiah, is they don't recognize Jesus as the Christ. They don't recognize Jesus as that Messiah. They don't have a full picture of what Jesus of the Christ would do, and they don't realize that Jesus himself is the Messiah. Because if they did, they would worship him. They would love him. The, the passage our friend Kyle preached on last week, the scribes knew the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. But if the scribes realized that Jesus, in fact, was the Christ, was the Messiah, they would worship him as this God. That's why Jesus says to the scribe, you're not far off. Because until you recognize that I am the Lord, until you recognize and submit to my authority as God, you're still outside the kingdom. You're still not understanding it. So I was thinking about it this week. I was reminded and, and shown and convicted of how much of a scribe I am. How just like the scribes, I can have, I can know the right answers. I can know that I should love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my strength, with all my might, and I should love my neighbor as myself. But just like the scribe, I can, I can be hypocritical. I can fail to see it. I can fail to really call Jesus my Lord. And I think there's many Christians and many of us, we fall into this all the time. We, are, we have a scribe inside of us where we might confess Jesus as Lord, but we don't really believe that. We don't really fail, or we don't really see Jesus as Lord. We might have the right knowledge, the right information, but we don't worship him as Lord. We might serve Jesus, talk about Jesus, follow Jesus, but we act as if there's something more important or someone more important than Jesus. So as a church, one of the ways I think we can apply this passage is that we need to have a, a growing, continually growing understanding of who Christ is. We need to have a humble learning spirit mentality, a disciple mentality that we, have, we always have stuff to learn. We can never be so arrogant to think that our view of Christ is complete or we fully know who he is or have a full understanding of who he is. We should seek to continue to try to confess and show and worship and demonstrate the reality that he is in fact our Lord. We don't want to have blind spots, so we need to continually hear and read and learn about God and who this Jesus Christ is. So, I think we should be readers. I think we should love to study our Bibles. We should love to learn about Jesus. It's interesting, too, at the end of verse 37, after Jesus questions and challenges the scribes, showing that they don't have a complete view of who the Christ is, it says there that the great throng, which is like a great crowd, it's kind of an interesting word there, 
heard him gladly. And I was doing some study this week. Some commentators would say, well, the crowd was just, they were really enjoyed seeing Jesus stump the so-called experts. They loved it. They heard him gladly. But another commentary said this, and I think this might be a little more on the, on the lines of what Mark was trying to portray. He reminded us this is not the first time this phrase, heard someone gladly, appears in the Gospel of Mark. This phrase, this idea, is described when Herod heard John the Baptist preach about his need for repentance, about the life that he was living in sin was not okay. And Mark describes there that Herod heard him gladly. Of course, we know that the story in in Mark, Mark describes that this did not stop Herod from beheading John the Baptist, from silencing him. This prophet of God, even though he knew and had a fear of this man as, as being from God, he heard him gladly he still beheaded him, that this paints a picture of what the crowds would do. That although they heard him gladly in this moment, it will be but a few chapters later that they are calling for his crucifixion. That their attitude of of delight and hearing him gladly turns to shouting and mocking him of his death. That is what's happening here. Jesus continues, he says in verse 38, continues his teaching, Mark records in verse 38, he says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus not only challenges their incomplete view, their their false belief of who the Christ is, but he cautions and condemns against their practices and against their devotion. Now, we can't falsely assume that Jesus is talking about all scribes here. I don't think all of the scribes are like this. But Mark certainly does show that maybe the most influential, the greatest scribes, they hated Jesus. And they were guilty of fraud, of greed, of abuse of widows. And they sought to end Jesus' life because he was challenging them. He was calling them out on their hypocrisy, their inconsistency. He was exposing their greedy, selfish ambition for money and for power. And Jesus is saying, watch out. Beware of them. Beware of the scribes. They, locked, they like to walk around these long robes. Were this, they would call these things the talith. In case you're curious. It's longer. That's what it was called. It's a long shawl that was used for, for prayers and for religious activities. It was kind of a way of, of showing off Look at how holy and righteous I am. It was kind of like the religious uniform, you could say. And they wouldn't just wear these for their religious activities or for their prayers. They would walk around in these. They loved the recognition. They loved the greetings. They looked, they loved their kind of appearance of righteousness. Look at how well I am devoted to God. I wear my robes and I love these long greetings. But Jesus says that they exploit widows. They devour widows' houses. Now, in those days, the scribes, they, they weren't allowed to take income. So they were reliant upon gifts and the generosity of those who they instructed and taught. And what a lot of times would happen is there would be wicked, crooked scribes who would abuse this. And they would feel a sense of entitlement or uh, guilt people into giving them payment or uh, They would abuse this by preying on widows who were weaker. They would come close and snuggle up with 
especially rich widows, in an effort that they might be willed their houses and they might find a sweet spot with these widows to be given things. Or like we saw earlier in the gospel according to Mark, they would misuse the law of God and, and wrongfully lay claim of someone's property and say, well, this belongs to God now and take it. They would devour widows' houses and Jesus exposes them. He says these long robes, these long prayers are masks. They're covers, they're charades to the heart set on self and greed and power and money. The scribes had idolized power, they had idolized prestige, they idolized recognition, and in so doing, they had abused those who didn't have those things. As they idolized power and prestige, they abused those who didn't have honor and prestige and power. They might know what the greatest commandment is, but they certainly aren't loving their neighbor as their self. Jesus serves as a stark contrast to these scribes. He, he teaches his disciples that greatness comes not from having the best seats in the house, not from getting the best greetings in the marketplace, but being the servant. Putting others first. The scribes, however, they loved recognition, they loved honor. They loved the glory of man more than they loved the glory of God. They loved receiving honor from men more than they received honor from God. And Jesus condemns them. He says they will receive the greater condemnation. I think, again, it's kind of easy when we read stories like this to kind of distance ourselves and put ourselves outside of the story and say, those scribes, losers. <laughs> wow. Man. They just like to walk around in their long robes. They made these long prayers. And they were so hypocritical. And Jesus saw right through it. Again, I'm, I am just like this scribe. I want recognition. I want honor. I want you guys to praise me. Can we do that a little bit? Praise me? I want prestige. I want the nice seats. Maybe one day I'll get a nice long robe. And walk around. We have to ask ourselves this question, how are we like the scribes? Do we want recognition of man more than recognition from God? Do we serve so that we can get recognition from God or so that others can see how good of a Christian we are? I know lately I've been really convicted of my own failings and God has revealed my failings in this a lot. I'm quick to serve others. Where People can see me serve them. They can see how good of a pastor I am, how good of a servant leader I am. But, you, but I'm ashamed of myself when I think about how I serve Stephanie, how I don't help her with the dishes, how I don't put her needs above mine. Because you guys don't see that. Micah probably does more than anyone. I'm just like the scribe. How are we like the scribes? Do we seek our glory or do we seek the glory of the Father? As disciples, we are to walk in growing humility, transparency, integrity, and love for the poor and weak. And I love this final, this final story, this, this final scene that we see here in chapter 12, the story of a widow. It's like 
in stark contrast to what he just described in the scribes. Accords in verse 41, Jesus comes and he sits down opposite the treasure. He starts watching people put money into the offering box. And he sees rich people put in large sums. In verse 42, he sees this widow. And she comes in and she puts in two small copper coins which make a penny. Jesus sees this, and his disciples weren't with him. He calls them over. He says, guys, look at this. Look what's happening right here. Come over, he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those contributing to the offering box. Now, when I was reading this, I I thought, you know, if I was a disciple, I surely thought that Jesus was joking. Hey, guys, come over here. Look at this little widow. She just put in two little coins. It probably made a little clink, clink other than these rich people putting in these large sums, making probably a lot of noise into the offering box. They see these many, a lot of rich people putting in these large sums, and Jesus calls them over to see this little widow put in two small coins. Mark describes it makes a penny. Now, some of your Bibles might have a little footnote under there that describe what that penny is. It, the Greek lepta. Uh, Mark is kind of describing what this is because he's writing to a church in Rome that might have been unfamiliar with this coin. The word literally means a tiny thing. It's where we get the English word for might. The lepta was a fraction of anything of value. It was nothing. It was the smallest worth of any coin. And one of these copper coins was one 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 twenty-eighth of a denarius. And a denarius was a, a day's wage of a, an average agricultural worker. One one twenty-eighth. So both of these together make... 164th of a day's wage. There's nothing. Like it, it's like, think of a fraction of a percent of a coin, of a cent. You know what I'm trying to say? A very small coin. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> the disciples must have been thinking, Jesus, come on, her. Two small copper coins. Look at how much others have put in. She gave more than all the rich people. Jesus says she's the only one who gave sacrificially. Jesus says she's the only one who gave all she had. Jesus is teaching his disciples that what is most important is not the amount, but the sacrifice, the degree of the surrender. The widow didn't give much but her giving demonstrates a complete devotion, trust, and surrender in God. She has true faith. Faith that bears fruit in submission and trust and sacrificial generosity, and Jesus commends her. He highlights her. He praises her. He shows the sacrificial generosity of the widow. And this widow is is the example, the demonstration of what Jesus had just described, the, the greatest commandment, loving God with everything. She is the model disciple. She is characterized by complete devotion to God and a complete commitment to God. Not just giving her excess, but giving everything. See, the scribes and the rich, they come in and Jesus describes there that they just gave out of their abundance. They only give their excess. They only contribute out of the extra, the leftover that they have. But this widow gave everything she had. And she shows who her true God is, what she really has faith in. 
Jesus has some pretty hard, hard words to talk about money, and he warns people about money and greed far more often than he does actually about sex. In one passage in Matthew 6, 24, he says, and he warns, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And unfortunately, there's not a little footnote in there that has your name in it. It says, except for you. I'd like to think that it has that for me. Everyone else can't love God and money, but Daniel Englehart, he's okay. He can love God and money. Jesus says you can't do it. We can't have this mentality that we're disobeying Jesus because we think we can love God and, and love money. Jesus says you can't do it. Bible scholar David Garland says it like this, we will be ruled by one or the other. The one who is double-minded will eventually fall sway to money, to mammon. One cannot seek power, wealth, empire, and sensual gratification and at the same time be submissive to God's will. Those who present to God a few moments in to worship in a church gathering once a week while ignoring the rest of life at work, at home, at play, will suffer from a religious schizophrenia. Those who try to straddle the fence by allotting God only token love while maintaining a bosom friendship with the world are doomed to be frustrated in the world and doomed in the world to come. With God, it is all or nothing. Love cannot be tithed like money. Few can honestly sing, all to Jesus I surrender, but God requires nothing less. I like to sing this song, and I, I change the lyrics of it. This is, in reality, what I do a lot of times with my life. All to Jesus I surrender some. You know that song? That might be more fitting, actually, for some of us to sing that one, right? All to, or some to Jesus I surrender, some to him I begrudgingly give, right? How many can say that's a song of our hearts sometime? Sadly, I'm not alone. We're not alone in this. There's studies out there, and uh, the Barna Research Group reports a study that only one in eight quote-unquote born-again Christians give anything. Or on average, studies show that American Christians give between 2 and 3% of their income. That's the reality. Little to Jesus, we surrender. This shows a lack of gospel saturation in our in our wallets, in our bank accounts. A lack of biblical understanding about this. And I was kind of amazed. Uh, two years ago, I, was, I used to work at Les Schwab Tire Centers. And I was talking with a, a co-worker about what we were doing up here, and we were starting a church, and we wanted to see Jesus transform lives. And he kind of asked the question. He says, well, um, Daniel, um, who is, who's building your church? I said, well, you know, first off, it's not my church, it's Jesus' church, and in fact, the Bible says that Jesus built his church. But I knew what he was saying, I wasn't just going to be a smart aleck, uh, although words are very important. I said, well, uh, you know, church members, we, we give to run, to operate the church and to bless others, and, and that's, that's what happens. And he was just blown away, like he couldn't even imagine that. He thought there was kind of like this group of people that comes around and builds churches and 
pays pastors, and I don't know where they come from. I mean, maybe, maybe we're, we're just not meeting those kind of people, but the, everything comes from within. And he looked at me with kind of a look of a disbelief, and he said, you mean people give their hard-earned money to God and to the church? Like he was, he'd never even heard that before. And I don't think this lack of biblical understanding on this is just outside of the church. I think a lot of times we fail to see how the gospel affects and transforms the way we spend our money. Because Jesus expects his disciples to be generous, to be joyfully generous. He expects his disciples to treasure him above all things. He, in fact, says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So when we look at the statistics, when we look at our own life and we see our bank accounts and maybe we can do some math this week and see how much we, we give away and how much we keep to ourselves, what does that reveal about where our treasure is? That's what Jesus would say. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What percentages do we give? Not just like I, I give my 10% check. What do our actions reveal about our beliefs? Do we really believe Jesus is our treasure? Or does our bank account, our checkbook, our time logs, our words, our actions reveal something or someone else? There's a great book I've, I read recently, one of the most convicting books I've read this year, uh, called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. Uh, can't recommend this book enough in regards to, to how the gospel influence and affects everything, more specifically our finances, and kind of the secret to, to joyful giving, to generous giving. And he says in there, as surely as the compass needle follows north, your heart will follow your treasure. Money leads, hearts follow. I've heard people say, I want more of a heart for missions. I always respond, Jesus tells you exactly how to get it. Put your money in missions and in your church and the poor and your heart will follow. Do you wish you cared more about eternal things? Then reallocate some of your money, maybe most of your money from temporal things to eternal things and watch what happens. God wants your heart. He wants people so filled with a vision for eternity that they wouldn't dream of not investing their time, money, and prayers where they will matter most. If as a church we want a greater heart for the lost, we want more of a heart for God, we want more of a heart for each other, for our church, give. Put your treasure It, it transforms the way that you, you act. Do we want a heart for the lost? Do we want a heart for God? Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this story a couple times, uh, the story of the poor widow, and I've even heard preachers say, the point of this story is that you need to be more like the widow. Or you, you hear a story about this, and you see the, the contracting of the scribes and the widows, and you might think the principle of this story is don't be like the scribes and be like the widow. And I don't know if that's exactly what the point is. Again, like I said in the beginning, I think all of the Bible is about Jesus and, and this passage even is about Jesus. What does this show us about Jesus? The first section is kind of easy, right? 
Jesus telling us that he's the Lord of David, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that he's going to put all the enemies under his feet. What about the second half, that, that second section about the scribes? Jesus is the greater scribe. He's the good scribe. He is the, the lens, the interpreter of the law that we need to view everything through. This is what Jesus talks about in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. This is what Jesus is saying. All the scripture is about me. And then he says in Luke 24, 27, beginning with the pro- Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning himself. Jesus is the best scribe. If we want to see how to best interpret scripture, we need to view it through the lens of Jesus. He is the good scribe, the the good interpreter. Everything should be viewed through him. This passage is about Jesus. And this passage shows that that Jesus is the better scribe. He's the righteous teacher. His actions always line up with his words. Jesus is not like the scribes that he warns about and condemns. He's righteous. He's not hypocritical. He's true. He's just. He's noble. He's honest. Unlike the scribes, Jesus didn't seek the best places. He didn't look for the best seats. He didn't look for greetings in the marketplace. He didn't walk around in long flowing robes. He actually didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He came down to earth as a baby, and he grew up in poverty. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, a righteous life, a a just life. He didn't have these long flowing robes. He didn't look for recognition. He served others. He washed his disciples' feet. And he wasn't clothed in riches or in great clothing. He was stripped naked on the cross. He wasn't praised in marketplaces and greeted in marketplaces. He was scorned and mocked. This passage is not primarily don't be like the scribes, but Jesus is the true scribe. Jesus is the good scribe. But this passage is also not be more like the widow. This passage shows us and points to Jesus as the greater poor widow, you could say. Jesus is the greatest offering. He's not like the rich who just give out of their abundance, and he's not poor who gives everything. He is completely rich, and he gives everything. He is the richest, most generous. He is the offering. He gives himself as payment for sin, a debt that we could never pay. He is the ransom, as Mark calls him, the redemption That as he's on the cross, he brings redemption from sin, from slavery, and from death, and he is the payment that we could never pay. That's freely given. All of these point to Jesus. He's the good scribe. He is the righteous teacher. He is the greatest offering. And the key to being more generous or living out these biblical principles is not trying harder. We can't come to this passage and say, well, it says we need to be more like this widow. We, we need to observe these principles about our finances so that we can become better Christians. We need to understand the gospel more. We need to see how it applies to everything. 
We need to work out its implications in every aspect of our life. The disheartening statistics on studies that show the, percentage, the small percentage of Christians that give or the small percentage that they give and the sad reality, the stories that you hear about Sunday afternoon being the worst time for restaurants because they get the least amount of tips, these reveal that we don't need to be told to give more. We need to be shown how the gospel shapes and affects our giving. And how when we're really understanding the gospel and we see Jesus' generosity, there is no other response than to be generous. People don't need more principles or to be told that they need to give more. They need to be shown how a lack of generosity in their life reveals a disbelief in the gospel. Because the reality is Jesus did not give 2 to 3% of himself for you. Jesus did not give 10% of himself for you. God did not spare anything for you. He sent his only son. He sent himself. And Jesus lost everything for us on the cross. He became poor so that we could become rich in him. And the right response is then to to surrender, to give, to worship him in this, to see his generosity, to praise him, and to become more and more like him, to grow more and more like him. We become more generous. Therefore, when individuals experience this, we understand the gospel, it, it overflows, and we start to leverage all of our resources, not just our abundance or our leftovers. This is what happened, we see, when the disciples get it. When they receive the Holy Spirit and they're sent out to be his witness. Acts describes in chapter 2 that they're devoting themselves to each other. They're surrendering everything to each other. They, they had all things in common. They're selling their possessions. They're realizing it's not their own, that everything is Christ. They're giving their belongings. They're proceeding the needs to all as any had need. Day by day, they're coming together and they're eating together and they're worshiping together and they're giving together. It's what happens when people get the gospel. Randy Alcorn says on page 31 there, he, he describes a friend of his named Dixie Farley who says, we are most like God when we are giving. Gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. Give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. Let's grow in our generosity as we grow in our understanding of the gospel. Let's come back to Jesus again and again and again to see his generosity towards us on the cross see his love poured out on the cross and, and have it shape us and change us and transform us. Let's invite others into our life to help us apply this and understand this and delight in this and show us how our actions don't line up with our beliefs and show us areas in our life in which we're not really believing the gospel. Kerry was telling me, and, and uh, I think he, he told me this, that a lot of times the wallet is the last per thing on a person that gets saved. That's sad, my friends. Do we have this mentality of this is ours, this is mine? Do we have this mentality in our, in our discipleship, in our relationships, in our gospel communities? Listening to a guy, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, talk about this topic and finances, and he says, you know, people are open to kind of everything. You can talk about my sex life, you can talk about 
how I spend my time, but don't talk to me about how I spend my money. Do we have this, this mentality, this transparency with others that if our gospel community leader or if people in our life asked us, hey, let me see your bank account, what would our response be? Like right now I can see it in your faces. Nope, not doing that. I can see it all over you. And the goal, of course, would not be you wicked, selfish sinner. But man, are you believing the gospel? I mean, Jesus wants so much more for you. He wants you to experience true life and joy in him. That's why he says, put your treasure in me. I'm way more satisfying than money. I'm way more eternal than money. Another quote in there is that he says that you never see a, a hearse pulling a U-Haul. We need to be storing our treasures up in heaven that are lasting and eternal. As friends, I can say, there's nothing better than following Jesus. There's nothing better than surrendering to him. There's nothing better than giving anything to him and, and going like this, releasing our hands. How are you becoming more like Christ in your giving? How are we becoming more like Christ in our giving? What does the way you spend your time and your money reveal about who or what you treasure most? Do you have the mentality that nothing is yours? Your house, your car, your families, your things? Do you share what you have with others? I think the church almost should kind of be like Amish in this aspect. Like we just have one pressure washer, one tools that we just rotate or, you know, just like, why, don't, why aren't we like this? We have everything in common, everything we, we're sharing everything together. Am I off on this? Maybe I am. I don't, I don't think so. How can we better be a family? How can we have the mentality that nothing is ours, that everything is Jesus and everything is, is for blessing others that he has given us? I think one of the most important spiritual decisions we can make is determining what we need to live on and giving away what we don't. So as we close, I ask you to think about that this week. Look at your bank account. Look at the way you spend your time and your resources and what you have. Look at your heart and, and what kind of, are you really kind of closed off and, and you know, this is mine. I worked hard for this. Or Jesus has given me all this. Let me share it with others. Maybe you need to make a list of the things that you actually need, a reasonable amount of what you could, could keep and, and think about what you could give, what ministries you could give to, who you can bless, what neighbors you can bless, what, what missionaries you could bless, what neighbors you could bless. Friends, let's not hoard our waste, our spend the excess, but let's see how we can leverage it for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your righteousness is perfect. That you are the only one who is not hypocritical. That you gave your son as an example of what it means to love you with everything. 
Thank you for not giving us a little bit, our excess, our leftovers, but giving your only son for us. We did not deserve that, Jesus. We deserved hell and death and separation from you, Father, but in your love, you sent your son to be our payment, to be the offering for our sin. That if anyone would believe and trust in him, that we get you. We get to experience life and truth and and the way to salvation. Father, would you show us and would you remind us that that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, that there is no joy outside of you that is lasting and eternal? Would we live lives that demonstrate our understanding and our belief in the gospel? That just as you did not spare anything, but were generous towards us, that as we become more like you, as we believe in the gospel, we would become more generous as you are conforming us to look more like you. Would people look at us and see that we treasure you above all things, not our, not our money or our families or our hobbies or our houses, but that you are our treasure. Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would convict hearts and that you would encourage us, that you would show areas of disbelief in the gospel and, and bring others alongside of us that will love us enough to, to show us and remind us and encourage us. And that now would be a time of repentance and, and celebration of what you've done, that although we've been like the scribes, although we are like the scribes, uh, our righteousness and our riches are freely given in Christ. That you've already paid the debt, the penalty, that we can live in reality and in light of that. I ask now that you are glorified as we sing to you, and as we think about how your gospel should affect and transform every aspect of our life. I love you, Father. Amen.